0: Okay guys, so today we have here with us Jacob Little. Uh, He is currently a PhD candidate in creative nonfiction at Ohio University and he obtained his MFA in poetry at Minnesota State University. He is the managing editor of Brevity and the co-founder and consulting editor of Profane. And he has written two wonderful pieces for Quillette rehabilitating feminism and in escaping conformity and that's the reason why i invited him today so well jacob how are you doing man i'm doing all right thank you very much for inviting me (laughs) yeah yeah i was really eager to talk with you after having read your your two pieces uh, at quillette so okay so let's just jump right into it Uh, so in your, in your piece, Escaping Conformity, uh, you establish a very interesting differentiation between compliance, identification, and internalization. To quote you, conformity is the kind of agreement offered in pursuit of social approval. Could you expand on this and give us some examples of what you take to be uh, compli- uh, conformity? Sorry.
1: Yeah, so conformity, as I define it, is talking about the reasons psychologically why we um, agree with other people or join other groups or sign on to particular tribes um, or ideas. Um, and so the, the three sort of categories I gave were compliance, identification, and internalization. Um, and uh, so compliance would be uh, when you're seeking social approval. When you're when you're looking for uh, group approval, when you're looking for uh, defense from from uh, attack, um, and so that you know, co- compliance is um, it's it's uh, it's it's a way to join a group. Um, and so it's about joining that group and being a part of that of that collective. And identification is when you're looking out for some sense of self-identification. So, so your self-identity. Um, so, if I want to believe something about myself, about who I am, it's a it's a story I tell myself about myself. Um, and so that's what identification is when you know. So when you conform in order to. Um, tell yourself a story about who you are. Um, so an example I would give would be something like, I, um, I become, I, I agree with Sam Harris because I want to believe I'm a powerful thinker because I think he's a powerful thinker. And so I conform to his views because I wanna believe that about myself. Um, so that would be identification. And uh, internalization is the Is actually agreement so it's it's believing the ideas it's um it's agreeing with an argument it's being convinced it's being persuaded so you know these are the three different um psychological reasons why you would conform to a particular group or idea
0: Mm -hmm. right Uh, and particularly about uh compliance um having read your article one thing that readily came to my mind was uh, and I don't know if you know about this, the conformity experiment Zash did back in the 50s. No, you don't know no I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. Uh, 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 I don't know if you ever watched the videos back from the 50s where they had a group of people uh, and all of them were actors, but uh, and only one of them was the people who, were, who was experimented on. Uh, And uh, the experimenter showed them uh, three lines for them to say what was the line that was of the same length of another line that they showed. And then uh, the actors started to say that uh, one specific line that was shorter in comparison to the first one was the correct answer. And then when, when they arrived at the last person that was the the one who was participating really in the experiment uh, she uh, i think that 35% of the time the person uh, complied and f- and gave the same answer as the other people uh, had given before so you know th- these kinds yeah. of experiments and th- and then uh, another interesting experiment was done by Stanley Milgram in the 60s uh, where um, he had a space uh, and uh, one experiment was dressed uh, in some sort of clothes that, uh, that expressed authority he was dressed like a teacher or something like that and then uh, they had again uh, an actor that um, that was going to answer some questions that the fake professor was posing. Uh, And then uh, people participated and and how did they participate? They had to uh, uh, push some buttons, which would supposedly uh, give an electrical shock to the person every time they gave an incorrect answer. And so, uh, and to see, if people complied with that or not and the voltage could reach a point that if it was real it could kill the person yeah yeah Uh, yeah i I don't know if you know about Well, i remember
1: reading about another uh, a similar experiment where they were sort of sitting in a classroom setting or something like that and a fire alarm went off and um and and there would be a person at the front of the room like a teacher and they'd be like just continue uh taking your test Um, this test that we have you doing and then they would actually start piping in smoke into the room oh yeah and and the fire alarm is still going off and and the number the the amount of time the number of people you know most people even with the fire alarm going off even with direct evidence with smoke coming in you know if somebody at the front of the room is telling you stay in the room you stay in the room so, yeah, humans are, are crazy creatures that way.
0: Yeah, but but did you have these particular kinds of experiments in mind when you were writing about this? Because, I mean, uh, these, these experimenters and these researchers uh, performed these kinds of experiments back in the day, back in the 50s, the 60s, and so on, uh, because they were trying to know why did so many people comply with what was done in Nazi Germany and communist Russia and so on? Yeah, I I mean,
1: those sorts of things definitely occurred to me. I I was also thinking a little bit about um, uh, why students, because I'm a teacher, um, and I was thinking about why students believe everything that their teachers tell them or tend to, because you know, I'm I'm teaching in the humanities department, and uh, we're sort of pushed to teach a certain kind of um, uh, political philosophy these days, um, and 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 it often comes off as preaching. And so I have a certain amount of frustration with that, and I want my students to think critically and to see me as not somebody to just believe um, uh, without any kind of questioning. So. Um, what i'll what I'll try and do is i'll I'll say something uh, demonstrably false, <laughs> one class period. And then the next class period we'll bring it up again, and I'll say, "Well, why did you believe me? Um, you know what what made you think that a, a rhetoric professor has any sort of knowledge in um, this scientific field? Um, and so we we talk through that. and um, and and a lot of it just comes down to, they're used to this um, social environment. They're used to um, this person standing up at the front of the room with a sense of authority, and they they just comply because that's how this, the rules in this space work. Um, so I, I'm definitely aware of that sort of like the social structure um, causing people to comply or conform um, based on just, well, that's what we do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and since you talk about your students, let's uh, have a follow-up question about that and to talk uh, also about what has been done since the 50s and the 70s, also about these kinds of experiments, because uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but... Uh, They've done follow-up experiments and they reach the conclusion that uh, people tend to conform, but it also depends a lot on their specific kind of personality because there Uh are people that tend to conform more than others. For example, when we talk about the big five personality traits, uh, uh, when someone is more agreeable, they tend to conform more. For example, uh, when someone is more disagreeable, they tend to conform less. Uh, When someone uh, perhaps is more open to experience it's it's more difficult to make them to conform, at least in terms of ideas and so on. And so uh, they, they reach this conclusion that it depends a lot on the personality of the subject, on the one hand, and on the other hand, they notice that if there's at least a, mi- a minimum number of people that defect, then mm. that tends to have an escalating effect and then there are other people that join them if they don't believe to begin with that the ideas that are being espoused by the society or or in that uh, or in the experiment they then follow the ideas they had at the beginning and don't conform let's say to what the majority of people were saying or defending
1: absolutely and so i mean um yeah, and I think the personality types that you brought up, you know, I think those are dynamic, right? They're, I don't think they're universal for specific people, but I think, you know, um, it depends on, you know, so these, these are categories these, uh, that I laid out are psychological, and there are all sorts of other factors that go into it, right? I mean, there's biology, which I think is a factor of those personality traits that you laid out, um, but there's also environment and the specific ideas at play, um, even if I'm, I'm more likely to disagree in this setting or challenge in this setting, um, in, in another given setting I wouldn't be because of any number of reasons. It could just be um, environmental, it could be that day I woke up you know, with a particular set of circumstances. So you know, um, the, the, the things that I laid out in terms of conforming are, I'm trying to lay down some groundwork, but they're by no means prescriptive. Um, yeah, so it's it's really complex, as you said. You know, um, the number of people who who uh, who speak up or, or or do something differently makes a big difference too, um, because that gets the critical part of your brain going too. So um, I think rec- I, I recently I was reading about um, a study on a congregation at a Baptist Church um, mm-hmm. on the brains of people in this church who were listening to this uh, this uh, this sermon and you know and and this the scientists doing the study expected to see all sorts of things going on in the brains you know of um, all sorts of chemicals flying around excitement um, community that sort of thing but the most striking thing they found was that the prefrontal cortex was all but shut down so their critical mm-hmm. thinking was shut off um, And I think the same sort of thing tends to happen when we're talking about um, um, any sort of authority or any sort of social situation where you're acceding to somebody else, where you're acceding to other people. So if if you tend to, if you're in a situation where you're at the... if you're at risk from other people, then you tend to shut down a little bit that way, and and, and listen to what they have to say um, out of fear or respect or any any number of other things. Um, and so, I think you know, uh, if you have one person speak up, that's when the prefrontal cortex, sh- you know, starts up again. It's like, oh, okay, maybe I should be thinking critically about this. Um, and so, I think that's where. Um, Hopefully, um, once you do get some, some critical mass going um, in terms of speaking up against bad ideas, um, then that's where some, some ground can be made up.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah, that's really interesting. And I don't know if this that I'm going to talk about now also falls under the rubric of what you're trying to... To, to expose in, your, in this article, in this specific article, escaping conformity. But um, there's another researcher called Erica Shenoweth, who back in 2011 wrote a book called "Why Civil Resistance Works," and she okay. and she has analyzed. Uh, um, a lot of of revolutions, political revolutions, and uh, many ways, many approaches people had uh, throughout those sorts of revolutions, mainly during the 20th century. Uh, And she reached the conclusion that uh, if you push for civil resistance instead of violence, uh, then uh, the the results you get uh, are more long term, uh, okay. and uh, because you, you, it's easier to convince a higher number of people to adhere to your cause instead of recurring to violence. And uh, and another in- very interesting uh, finding she had. And uh, and I think that really falls under the rubric of what you're talking about is that uh, it is only necessary to convince three percent of the total population to adhere to these kinds of civil resistance movements to to uh, to begin to expand it. And eventually, to encompass a majority, or at least a sufficiently large number of people, and then to follow up with uh, with that with that kind of movement, and, and to and yeah. to have political change. Yeah, I think um, I think the thing
1: with uh, civil resistance is um, any kind of resistance of a dominant narrative like that is going to often take some kind of self-harm um, and so mm-hmm. civil resistance is definitely some there's some self-harm involved right um, mm-hmm. but there would be a uh, sort of more physical or violent resistance as well um, what what tends to happen is uh, the environment around the civil resistance that works right it's not it's not just the small critical mass it's the critical mass builds because people can start to speak on behalf of those people getting harmed um, and they feel confident that they can stand up for them, um, and and hopefully not attain as much harm themselves by speaking for them. And so the story spreads, right? The the story of these uh, of these people who are being wronged spreads. Um, as opposed to in a situation where there's violence, you, you know, it's much harder to defend that without you know, without attaining ha- harm to yourself. You know, if even rhetorically. Um, I, can't, I, I have a harder time defending feminism these days because of the things that come with that. I'm not confident that they're going to live up to the expectations that I think they should. And so um, th- there's possible harm that comes to me. And there's also just the, the frustration of I'm not confident that they, uh, that, that movement anyway, as, as it's called, deserves it. Um, so when you have civil resistance, when you have that sort of thing happening where there's not violence, there's not ugly rhetoric, where there's um, a genuine plea for you know equality, then I think the the voices pile in, um, the reasonable, rational, uh, rational voices pile in, and they're not you know they're not as um, uh, vulnerable. Uh, and I think that's a big part of joining a cause. You know, th- that's how a cause gains momentum is by um, the, the the level of risk involved lessening for people as they get involved.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and another really interesting idea that you have in your essay is that uh, to conform by itself is not bad because, oh. I mean, because, I mean to, for a society to work, people have to conform at least to what is going on in society at large in terms of ideas and in terms of behaviors, because otherwise, since we're going uh, along this, let's call it a tit-for-tat algorithm for society to work, uh, if there was a large number of people that decided to not conform in any way, shape, or form, then society would eventually collapse, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Not only is it not bad to conform, it's inevitable. <laughs> um, it, you know, you can try all you want not to conform. You know, um, you're going to be a lunatic living out in a cave. Um, but even you know, you're even there. You're conforming to the ideas of uh, I have to eat and drink to stay alive. You know, uh, so. <laughs> um, uh, At some point you're going to conform and sometimes you know it's going to be based on actually believing an idea sometimes it's going to be about self identity sometimes it's going to be compliance we all conform along these different lines and for different reasons part of the difficulty you know that i'm having recently is i want to remove the judgment from that part of it um i'm not super interested in um uh, thinking people are bad people or stupid or any number of other things because of the reason they conform to a particular viewpoint. Um, mm-hmm. That gets us nowhere. Uh, what, I think it's useful to know if you're trying to convince somebody why they believe one thing or another or why they've conformed to one thing or another. I think that's useful to know rhetorically, um, but it's not useful ethically. Um, and, and I think that that's a, a big difference, uh, distinction we need to make rhetorically versus ethically you know let's leave ethics out of this Uh, conforming is a thing we all do so let's get past that
0: Mm -hmm. and now about political correctness because you at least touch on it in both of your articles do you think that uh, there's at least to some extent uh, positive things coming from political correctness or anything at all and do you think that uh, political correctness can go it can reach a certain extreme where we can no longer ask difficult questions and and that's the point where it goes uh, it is no longer useful or good well you know um <laughs> i never quite know what to say about it.
1: i mean um By its very definition to me, it it seems like politeness is a thing worth striving for, Um, seeing the humanity in other people, and not even necessarily like the golden rule, because sometimes, you know, treat other people the way you want to be treated, because oftentimes people don't want to be treated the way you want to be. So it's about trying to understand what they want, and and, and hopefully you can give that to them. Um, But there, you know, there is a limit to that. There is a limit to that, and um, that limit is dynamic. Um, it, it depends on the situation, depends on what's being said, depends on where it's being said, depends on being who it's said to, um, so context is essential there. Um, and so it's, and, and, and so if you take things out of context, then it's really easy to make somebody look cruel or mean or as if they're trying to say something that they aren't. Um, so I think that, um here is just um, the the lack of responsibility on part of the listener. Um, I think everybody's trying really hard to uh, interpret things the worst way possible. Um, And so but I think that there's a responsibility for the speaker. And so that's where I talk about politeness, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But then there's also responsibility for the listener. Um, Is it is it reasonable? To assume the worst possible motive um in in every situation i don't think it is um i don't think it's uh, frankly i don't think it's polite (laughs) um you know if we're talking about political correctness you know so i i don't don't think it's it's very correct to keep assuming everybody's worst intention all the time um and so that's that's my concern when that comes up is always uh, you know I take responsibility as a speaker, and I hope that other people take responsibility as a listener. Um, I think David Foster Wallace talked about how, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt, giving them respect, um, and that uh, even sometimes imagining the least likely scenario um, that would make a reasonable person say this um, in in order to give them the longest rope possible. Um, that may not always be likely, um, but but it usually results in a healthier perspective for you um, if, if you're willing to p- give people the benefit of the doubt. Of course, it's not always, um, as I said, likely. <laughs> um, and so um, you know, sometimes we, we do have these trigger words, we do have these um, things where it's like, um, somebody says something and you know they mean something else. And so I'm not asking people to sort of turn off their brains or turn off their judgment centers, but I am saying, you know, maybe extend the rope out a little bit farther. Uh, that, that's my general thought process on the topic anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. And regarding gate speech specifically, because <laughs> hate speech is a very complicated matter nowadays, uh, do you think that uh, it is a useful concept? Do you think that... Uh, we should have laws in place against hate speech or do you rather think that it is so much a subjective thing and that if it reaches a certain extreme, then uh, anything uh, that we could conceivably consider as being offensive to someone could fall under the rubric of hate speech, uh, and or if we should just simply, as you as you talked about politeness, have rules of politeness working on society and completely ditch the laws about uh, that that uh, uh, consider hate speech
1: yeah i think um the law is a blunt instrument um and uh, who it's hitting depends on who's holding the hammer you know um and so hate speech is a con is is an idea that if it were a law um not only would it uh hit people who don't deserve to be hit, but it would hit different people all the time depending on who's in power. So it would be arbitrary and um, impo- o- opaque. You, 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 know, you would never be able to anticipate who's getting in trouble and for what. And so the, the difficulty there isn't just the pe- actual people getting hit, but the people who are silenced um, around that for fear of getting hit um so that's the concern with the hate speech law um you have similar fears um societally speaking uh, in terms of social norms and those sorts of things Um, and i think that there's not really a way to escape that Um, i I think that there there should be sort of um, there should be consequences for what you say Um, and so um, uh, i'm not sure you know hate speech, you know, as defined by people in terms of uh, a thing that you say that's hateful, <laughs> it exists um, and, you know, but but as a legal construct, um, it, at least in the United States, it's non-existent. Um, and so it, it's really interesting to see sort of that um, idea sort of rise in prominence and some confusion about what's the law and what isn't. Um, and, and, and as you said, um, uh, it's getting interpreted different ways in different contexts, um, and, uh, and, and, and I think, you know, it certainly shows up a lot on college campuses, for example, um, in some very strange ways. <laughs>
0: (laughs) yeah for sure Uh, and now uh, specifically about feminism and modern feminism Uh, because for example and you also talk a little bit about that in your article, uh, Kristina of Summers makes a distinction between what she calls equity feminism that is equal rights for men and women as it were espoused by traditional feminists let's say until second wave feminism Uh, and then What started with uh, the second part of second wave feminism and then expanded to third wave feminism in the 90s and so on, what she calls gender feminism, that is more of a sort of uh, trying to create a cultural war uh, Mm. between men and women, let's say, let's put it that way. what do you think are m- might be some of the extremes that third-wave feminism have? And, f- and do you think, for example, that uh, the Me Too movement in some way or another exceeded uh, itself? Uh, because I've heard from some people that... Uh, uh, good points from both sides for example i heard from people that defend the uh, the me too movement that uh, it is really important to uh, even we, if we exaggerate it a little bit uh, to bring this uh, into public discussion because uh, women are more vulnerable than men uh, when uh, when uh, when you're talking about uh, sexual violence and things <laughs> r- related to that but on the other hand, uh, if we really exaggerate it, then we might uh, we, we might be creating victims out of some men that work uh, that work, uh, that work uh, uh, some kind of uh, people uh, that we sacrifice, let's say uh, at <laughs> yeah. the uh, at the altar, right. <laughs> or some, or something that has far exceeded. Uh, it's its usefulness. So, yeah, um,
1: I, I would say that the, the difference between uh, healthy feminism and uh, uh, a more toxic one is typically, for me anyway, uh, separated by um, uh, goals of equality of status versus equality of outcomes, um, because equality of outcomes is never going to happen. Um, differences abide. And so, um it, it, it just won't happen. Um, and so differences of outcomes, you're just trying to make everything look equal, um, everything look the same. And uh, sameness, I I think is uh, a shame. I think it'd be a shame. <laughs> um, I, I, I think that um, it sort of runs roughshod over everybody. Um, so uh, I, I'm not in favor of equality of outcomes. What I am in favor of is equality of status and rights and respect. Um, and so I think, you know, in terms of the Me Too movement, I think I'm hugely in favor of it. Um, I'm hugely in favor of what I've learned from it um, in terms of the, the, the sexual environment in which women often have to live and, and abide in. Um, my concern, as always, is with overreactions and with um, um, because we know this or because we understand this now, then the only answer is all men are guilty and every man accused is guilty and those sorts of things. To me, you know, um, what holds true is due process. You know, what holds true is um, benefit of the doubt. Um, That doesn't mean... um, only give the benefit of the doubt to the man it means benefit of the doubt to everybody involved right Um, especially if i'm not personally involved I don't have the knowledge necessary to make a judgment on most of these cases. You know, a Bill Cosby situation, the guy's probably guilty. You know, there's 50 people, <laughs> you know. Um, I, I think at some point you, you suspend the, the, the disbelief and, and just say, okay, you know, this guy's scum. Uh, but in other situations where it's it's less certain and I don't know the people involved, I don't know motivations, um, I I don't... it to anyone to give my allegiance Um, and and I think that's where I think the difficulties come is when allegiance is demanded Um, and I don't owe that to anybody what I do owe is um, respect and uh, a a fair treatment Um, and 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 hopefully um, evidence will bear out what they have to say um, if if it's true so um, it, it certainly has been alarming to, to hear the number of these stories and that sort of thing. And I certainly, you know, and, and many of my friends throughout my entire life have been women. And so I, I have been aware of these stories, you know, for a long time. Um, but even just sort of the everyday regularity of them has, has been startling. Um, I, I am a little bit concerned that it's staying at the Hollywood level. Um, that this is this is largely just about powerful women um getting some sort of um equal treatment um because you know um, men and women who are working in retail jobs or um in more vulnerable jobs you haven't seen the same sort of me too movement rise up out of those situations um so it, it feels to me sometimes like it's just a different set of of powerful people seizing power <laughs> um and 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 that's a concern to me um if 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 we're really going to do this then i say let's 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 really examine the conditions of all women um, so yeah uh,
0: yeah yeah and it's really a shame because uh, to pick on that last part you said um you on on the in the u.s and on university campuses and since you're, you're part of that you would probably have something to say about it uh, you don't have a due process in universities when it comes to accusations of some sort of sexual misconduct right correct
1: well i mean it, it does depend on the school and um, it does also depend on uh, who's getting accused and who's um, doing the accusing. Um, so, there are some plate, you know. So graduate students are particularly vulnerable. Undergraduates are particularly vulnerable. But tenure gives um, a lot of men way too much power than they, you know, way, you know. So, so you know, it it takes ten years of multiple allegations. Um, here at Ohio University, in my department, we had a we had a predator who was around for about ten years until recently, and they gave him a fair trial. Um, and uh, ultimately he quit before he was fired and so he's he'll be free to to work someplace else Um, and you know so it's it's frustrating from these different perspectives because you know due process is important but um, um, sometimes when you give endless rope to one person um, and, and no rope to other people that's where everybody gets really frustrated and then they want to throw due process out the window. And so um, it's important that uh, we actually go through these investigations and um, not just claim due process and then ignore it, which I think is something that was happening for a long time.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So just before you finish, would you like to tell people a little bit more about where they can find more of your work and perhaps a project or another you're working on right now that you think people might find interesting?
1: Um, Well, um, I write creative nonfiction. um, And so uh, along with um, philosophical thought pieces and stuff like that, but you can find more of my creative work at jacoblittle.net. I'm currently working on uh, a collection of uh, thought pieces and um, um, and nonfiction about um, sort of the culture of isolation and alienation in the United States, um, and how um, our culture is geared towards separating people out from communities um and and this sort of glorification of an isolated pull yourself up by your bootstraps figure um so um that's what i'm working on now be on the lookout for that
0: okay great i will put that all in the description box and i will keep following on your work jacob so uh, i would would like to thank you a lot for being here with us today for being on the show Uh, i think it was a wonderful conversation and man keep on the good work and take care
1: Thank you, Ricardo. It was a pleasure.
0: Okay. If you appreciate my work, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash the dissenter. Thank you.